0: There are many uh, different understandings of what the Bible is and of how we should read it. For many, it's a book that is uh, to be analyzed just as any other book is analyzed. Maybe they might say it's especially helpful in certain things with certain information, uh, but at the end of the day, nevertheless, it is still a book like others for our critical analysis, uh, one in which we ultimately are the ones who stand in judgment over it. We are the ones who determine its level of usefulness. Um, of course, here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, we believe that the Bible is none other than God's revelation of Himself that He has specially given to humanity, that He's revealed Himself to the world in the Scriptures. And apart from this revelation, we would, in fact, be in darkness. We would not know who God is were it not for Him revealing Himself. We would not know the way to salvation, etc., Moreover, it's a revelation that centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it tells us of mankind's fall into sin, our uh, ruin and sinfulness, and it tells us of the promises of old, in the Old Testament, that a Messiah would come and bring about deliverance and make all things new. And Luke is writing his gospel, the gospel of Luke, to say, to tell us, the Messiah has come. Uh, this has occurred. He has come. His kingdom is at hand, and we should be confident of this. If you remember back at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, uh, where he's writing to Theophilus, these are real people, he's writing this to Theophilus, and he's saying he's writing it so that Theophilus may know, he may be certain of what he's heard and believed. And Luke has done some searching out, he's confident of this, and he's writing this. The events that he describes, they are not just stories that are nice uh, or interesting, Uh, They are God's way of revealing Himself to us and bringing people to a moment of truth, to either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, and to therefore continue in unbelief and sin. And so I invite you to turn with me as we continue working through Luke 13. Uh, We're going to read from starting in verse 10, and uh, today we're going to cover through to the end of 17. So I invite you to turn with me to Luke 13, verse 10. This is what the word of God says there. Now he was teaching, that's Jesus. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her And immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, And lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. As we come to Luke 13 and verse 10, we now get here a concrete, real life example of what it is that Jesus has been teaching over the last 20 or so verses that we've been looking at. So if you remember, backing up to chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus there tells us that he came to bring division, to cause division among men. Some would believe, and others would not believe. There'd be division. And he says that that division would even take place within some families, within some households. And then Jesus went on in verses 54 to 56 to say that these people that he's teaching, that he's talking to, they needed to understand the times in which they lived. Uh, They could could understand weather patterns and determine if it was going to be a nice day the next day or not, but they had no idea what was right in front of them, namely that the Messiah was there, that the kingdom of God was at hand. That's what they needed to understand and that they couldn't. And Jesus calls them hypocrites there. This long awaited Messiah was here. He was inaugurating the kingdom of God, the one that promised in the Old Testament, and yet uh, they didn't believe. And the matter, he goes on to say, and we looked at this last week, the matter is incredibly urgent. Uh, well, back at the end of chapter 12, he says the, he talks of the importance of settling with one's accuser. And by that, he's getting at the fact that. Uh, they have a debt before God, they have uh, sins that they've committed against God, and they need to settle with Him now while there's still time. And then chapters thir- chapter 13, verses 1 to 9, go on to drive home the, the urgency of the matter. And Jesus says that if, 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 no matter who you are, if you don't repent now while there's time, you will perish. And then He illustrated this in verses 6 to 9 with a parable about the fig tree. And now, as we get to verse 10, Luke gives us an example of what this looked like in Jesus' day with specific real people, some of whom had objections, real objections to the Lord Jesus, and then others, real people who uh, produced real fruit, who really did believe and as a result worshipped God. And so Jesus has taught these truths, he's illustrated these truths, and now Luke gives us a sample to reveal what this looked like in real life with real people. And it drives home once again for us the necessity of understanding the times, of understanding that the kingdom of God has indeed come, that this is what God through Luke is telling us. And it drives home the importance of responding rightly to this. So this passage reveals the importance of understanding the times and responding rightly. So number one, uh, understand the times. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. The miracle that Jesus performs in this passage that we just read reveals that God's kingdom has arrived. Uh, The miracle is said to overthrow or release from uh, the power of Satan himself. That's what's happening here. This woman is being loosed from this power. Now, if you remember back in chapter 11, verse 20, when Harley preached a couple months ago now, I guess, um, Jesus says there in chapter 11, verse 20, that such activity proves that the kingdom of God has come. There he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is evidence. The kingdom of God is here, that I am this Messiah. And the context there. It was the collision of kingdoms. Jesus casting out of demons is him binding the strong man, if you remember, and plundering Satan's kingdom. And so the correct interpretation of the times that Jesus tells them they should should have is that the kingdom has arrived. The Messiah has come. He's here. He's right in front of them. This is what he tells in verse 56 of chapter 12. This is what he, he tells the hypocrites. This is what they fail to see. They fail to understand this. And now we have a similar situation in which a hypocrite fails to see this and instead raises an objection about the Sabbath. Uh, but before we get to him, let's just look uh, at a little more at the miracle itself. Uh, the setting of this occasion, this story, is Jesus teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath day. And Luke tells us that this woman was there who had a disabling spirit, he says, for 18 years. The condition left her bent over and she's unable to stand up at all. So what's being described here then uh, is a physical ailment, she's bent over, that's brought on by demonic influence of some sort. Whether this was clear or obvious to her or anyone else or not, it's not clear. Um, But that's what Luke says was happening. This woman had been crippled by... The influence of an evil spirit. In verse 16 of our text here, Jesus will say that it was Satan who bound her like this. So I think I don't think it necessarily means uh, Satan personally uh, did this, but it could be a messenger of his, just as a commander of an army sends a messenger, whoever receives that message would understand it ultimately comes from. You know, from from the commander. Uh, it could be that, that that's what's going on. Uh, there are different types of demonic activity, oppression in the Bible. Uh, some of it is, is what we maybe automatically think of as possession, uh, where a person uh, seems to be almost completely controlled by an evil spirit. Uh, we might think of the uh, Garrison demoniac, uh, the one who had legion of demons indwelling him. Uh, the demons actually can speak through him, and uh, in these situations the a demon is driven out. That's the kind of language that's used. Uh, but for believers, uh, those who are Christians who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, uh, this kind of thing does not occur, but it's not their only activity. Demons also operate in other ways. They are said to be the influence behind false teaching. Uh, False teaching is referred to in Bible as doctrine of demons. Uh, Moreover, we see calamity fall on Job uh, because of Satan's activity, his work, um, even though Job was a righteous man. So he's not possessed or anything in that situation, but he is being oppressed and attacked by Satan. That's what the book of Job tells us. Uh, Moreover, Paul, a believer indwelled by the Spirit, he still says that he was harassed by a messenger of Satan in 2 Corinthians 12.7. And many people speculate about what that looked like for him. He doesn't say. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. So it's very possible that that was a physical ailment of some kind. The exact nature of the activity here in Luke 13, uh, it's not super clear, uh, but the result of it is clear. The result is that this woman is hunched over. She's been this way for 18 years. She's unable to fix it. This is the result of this, this binding, as Jesus calls it. Of course, ultimately, we know that Satan's leash reaches only so far as God Almighty will permit it and no further. And the time was up for this woman. Jesus is about to heal her. The time was up for Satan as it comes to his uh, oppression of this woman, that is. And so Jesus heals her. She does not approach him, interestingly enough. She's just there. Uh, But Jesus is the one, it says in verse 12, He called out to her and said, Woman... You are freed from your disability. And then it says he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. Just immediately, her back is fine, she stands up straight. Uh, Often, I think typically in Scripture, it's sick people coming to Jesus, asking him for mercy, asking him for help. Uh, But this time, Jesus reaches out to her, probably to in part to be compassionate upon her, and also to set off this... uh, this ruler of the synagogue, and to have this moment, uh, something that would be recorded, uh, remembered by those who were there and eventually recorded, written down in Scripture for our benefit, for our, for our learning. So it reveals Jesus' compassion on this woman. He heals her. Obviously, obviously, as we've seen these healings throughout the book of Luke, this is a remarkable power on display, without question. And once again, it is a sign that the time of fulfillment was at hand, that what the prophets of old had spoke about was coming true right before these people's eyes. The Messiah had come, and His kingdom was right on top of them. Again, that's what these types of works revealed. We saw this explicitly in chapter 11, verse 20, but I think even as we get to verse 18 next week and carry on next week, Jesus will use this as an opportunity to give further instructions about the kingdom of God. And so what we're seeing here is a miracle that functions as a sign that is screaming the kingdom's arrival, that the Messiah is here. We, of course, do not live in the first century in Palestine. Uh, We live many years later in a very different time. And so we don't look out our door and see Jesus doing these kinds of things. He's not walking the earth right now. But these works still speak today. And they do this through the Word of God. And they deliver, essentially, the same message, that the Messiah has come, that His name is Jesus, and that we also must repent. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 says, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the author of Hebrews is saying that the salvation that Jesus brings was proclaimed by the Lord, (coughs) proclaimed by Jesus Himself, and then it was attested or confirmed by those who heard it, you might think of the Apostles while God also confirmed it by various miracles and gifts. And the author of Hebrews is saying, what he's getting at, is that this has been reliably passed down. Jesus proclaimed it, then those who heard it have proclaimed it, miracles were performed, confirming these facts, and now I am assuring you of the truthfulness of this, and the author of Hebrews is calling on the readers to believe in the Lord Jesus. And so we, today, we we have this testimony of of, of what happened, uh, preserved for us and given to us in Scripture, in the Bible. So then what the Bible is testifying to us is is that the reality for us to face is that the Messiah has come and that His kingdom is, in fact... Here, that's the testimony of the Bible, and it's sufficient for our understanding, for believing it. Uh, If you remember from Luke chapter 16, uh, there's a parable there, Jesus tells, about a rich man and a man named Lazarus, who was a poor man. Uh, Both men died, and, uh, and, and then the rich man is said to be in hell, and he is able, in the parable at least, to look up and see Father Abraham in heaven. And he appeals and pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus, who is in heaven, back to plead with this rich man's loved ones so that they wouldn't end up in the same place. But Abraham replies, he says this interestingly, Jesus is teaching. Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. According to Jesus, the word of God is sufficient enough to bring about faith in a person. And if a person will not listen to Moses and the prophets, he says, they wouldn't listen if someone were to be raised from the dead. Not even that would be convincing. It's not ultimately just a matter of a lack of evidence. It's a it's a moral uh, rebellion against God, and a blindness. And so you might hear people in Jesus' day, you know, if I could only have been there when Moses did the things he did, if I only could have seen those miracles and those miraculous events, I wouldn't have rebelled as the people of Israel did. And, Moses, and, and Jesus is saying, if they won't listen to the words that Moses has said, they would not listen if they, heard, if they saw a miracle. And this is played out in the life of Jesus. They did not believe, though he was performing miracles. Likewise, today, we might hear people say, if I just saw the miracles of Jesus' day, if I just saw the miracles of the apostles, if we only had that today, then, I'm, then I would certainly believe. But according to Jesus, that's not necessarily true. The Word of God is sufficient testimony to the truth, according to him Of course, in Luke 16 there, he's referencing Moses, the Old Testament, but it's just as true for the New Testament. The Bible is not just a book to be studied and analyzed. It's a book that tells us the story of what God has done to bring about salvation for sinners. It is a book that leads us to stop and understand the times to understand the need for us to settle with our accuser, to settle with God while there's still time, before judgment falls. It teaches that Jesus has ushered in the kingdom of God. And yes, it is true that it has not yet come in its fullness. We will see more of that next week in verses 18 and following. That will happen later on. Jesus comes back. There's more to be done then. But it is nevertheless here now, and the time to enter that kingdom is now. It's upon us. As we read of Jesus healing this woman and delivering her from bondage to Satan and from her crippling illness, it is a sign to us as well who read it now that God's kingdom has come, and it is a foretaste of the ultimate victory that will come when the kingdom of God is here in its fullness when all disease will finally and completely be done away with, uh, when believers will receive resurrected, imperishable bodies, and when Satan will finally and forever be totally defeated. And the reality is, we are closer to that day now than even when Luke wrote this. So understanding the times means grasping that the kingdom of God has come. So there are obvious implications for us. The first is what we've been looking at for the past several weeks, namely that we're called upon to repent, to get right with God, to enter His kingdom by faith in Jesus, and then to then as believers spend our lives pursuing all that is in accordance with with this kingdom. As Christians sitting here, you believe this. Uh, This might not sound new to you, But just consider afresh now that the kingdom of God is here. That you are actually a citizen of God's kingdom, of his heavenly kingdom. That's where your ultimate citizenship lies, not here. And it's a a realization of this helps to fuel the pursuit of righteousness. It is this reality that encourages us to live the life of discipleship that Jesus has been calling us to, uh, to hold loosely to the things of the world, realizing, if you recall, that uh, life is not tied up with, found in the abundance of possessions. It enables us to be those who are waiting, ready, expectant for our master's return. So for Christians, our citizenship lies elsewhere. This is why the scriptures tell us, uh, refer to us as aliens and exiles on this earth, because Ultimately, we don't belong here. We don't find complete comfort and rest here because our citizenship is above. As the author of Hebrews says in 12.22, he says, We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where our citizenship lies. And so the, the Bible testifies to this reality. Luke wrote to assure Theophilus, and then by extension, us and whoever would read, that these events have in fact occurred, and the kingdom is in fact here, and those who trust in the Lord have entered into it. second aspect of understanding the times in, in this text is understanding that the kingdom of God splits the world in two. How can it be that the kingdom of God is, has come in any way When the world remains in such turmoil, even still, and when Christians are often marginalized, despised, underfoot of other people, despised in this world, how can it be then that we say God's kingdom has arrived? It would not look that way. It doesn't appear to be that way. Well, we need to understand that the kingdom's arrival splits the world into two groups, Again, back in chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus had said that he had come to bring division. That his kingdom coming would not mean that every single individual is going to believe, but rather that there's going to be a division as a result. There's going to be those who are in, some who believe, and there are going to be those who are not, those who do not believe and are not in. This was not new to Jesus. Uh, This is, is clear Back in the Old Testament, that when the Messiah would come, there would be judgment for some, and there would be mercy and grace and salvation for others. Malachi 3, 3 to 5 is just one place. It talks about the the day of the Lord when when the the Messiah would come. It would bring about a a refining fire and also a, a fire of judgment for others. Of course, we know in the New Testament that Jesus is this Messiah, and that judgment falls on those who reject Jesus, do not believe in Him, do not look to Him in faith, and mercy comes to those who believe in Him. And so the dividing line here is Jesus. And here we see this division occurring in real life, real life situations. This is not just a theory or something, It, it really happens, and we watch it happen. Jesus has just demonstrated unbelievable power and authority, revealing the kingdom is right there on top of them. The Messiah is there. And the people looking on are split into two groups. The first group is represented by the ruler of the synagogue, verse 14. Um, But as we see in verse 15, he's not alone. When Jesus rebukes him, he rebukes others who are like-minded with him. So he calls them hypocrites. He's not just addressing one person but multiple people. So there's other just like him. Uh, he just happens to be the guy who's speaking up. So in verse 14, we're told the ruler of the synagogue, uh, he was indignant. He's disgusted. Uh, far from understanding the times and seeing what's happening right in front of him and taking action and repenting, he's furious, and he's disgusted with what he sees. Why? Because Jesus has done this work on the Sabbath, and in his mind, he and all of these people that are here rejoicing in this are Sabbath breakers as a result. And so if you notice in verse 14, interestingly, uh, he speaks to the people. He addresses the people. He does not directly dare to rebuke the Lord. It's a little more passive, but he, he, he rebukes the people that are there, excited about this. He says, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was to be a day of rest in which all of the people in Israel were to do no work. Even the animals were not to be put to work on this day. When we examine the scriptures, we see that the Sabbath observance was to reflect the fact that God, at creation, rested from His work on the seventh day. Uh, Exodus 20 tells us that. But it was also to be a time uh, where they were to cease from work and remember, in doing that, to remember then God's redemptive work in saving them and rescuing them out of Egypt. So Deuteronomy 5.15 tells us that. But it also serves as a type that points ahead to the greater rest from our labors that Christ gives us now and will bring to perfect fulfillment when the kingdom is consummated upon his return. Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us that. But as for some of the specifics of how to keep the Sabbath, there weren't a ton of boundaries laid out in the Old Testament. So, over time, as leaders took it upon themselves to determine what constituted breaking the Sabbath and what it meant to keep it. A set of rules arose, and these became part of the tradition of the elders, this tradition that Jesus regularly clashes against. And these rules turned the Sabbath day into a slavery for the people. So Jesus elsewhere has to remind the Jews that the Sabbath was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is, it was meant to be a blessing for mankind, to rest from work, to focus on the things of the Lord. It was not to be this rigid, arduous restriction that we have to then cram ourselves into. It's meant to be a blessing for the people. But all these extra rules and, and being really strict about it and the way they had, uh, had, had created all these rules, as we'll see more in just a second, uh, Undermined the very purpose of the Sabbath. So, one of the, one of the rules that they created was that you couldn't seek medical attention except in the case of emergency only. So, this woman, he would argue, uh, it was not in a state of emergency. Right? She'd been this way for 18 years. Uh, clearly, the healing could wait another day till the Sabbath is over. Uh, therefore, This situation did not warrant such violation of the Sabbath, or so the thinking would go. But Jesus responds in verse 15. Let's read that again. He says, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. The point he's making is this you'll take care of your animals on the Sabbath by untying them and leading them to water, but you're furious when I take care of a human being who's been suffering for 18 years. So these hypocrites, they care more about animals than even human beings, and they're willing to do the work of untying an animal to to give it water, but they're they're, supposedly furious about this woman being loosed from her... Bond and disease. There's a word play here in in the Greek. The word untie in verse 15, talking about untying an animal, is the same word as loose in verse 16, which speaks of uh, loosing this woman from this bind that Satan has had on her. So he's saying you'll, you'll loose an animal on the Sabbath to feed it, to water it, but you won't stand to loose a woman from her infirmity on the Sabbath. Clearly, this is very hypocritical. As Jesus would say on another occasion, actually in Luke 14, we'll see in a couple weeks, it's perfectly legitimate to do good on the Sabbath. Works of mercy, works of compassion, these are good things. Even pulling an animal out of a well would be fine, Jesus says elsewhere. In fact... What better day of the week would there be for this woman to be healed, to be released from this bondage, and then result in praise and worship of God? What better day could there be than the Sabbath? Draw people's minds to the Lord, to His greatness and mercy. And so here was a man, an opportunity for this man and others like him to see that the kingdom was at hand a chance for this fig tree to bear good fruit. But instead, they appeal to their misunderstanding of Scripture to justify their rebellion and to condemn the Messiah himself. And so Jesus calls them out on this by pointing out their hypocrisy. And as a result of this, it says in verse 17, all his adversaries were put to shame. There's no response to that. He's got them... You know, dead in the water. They, they clearly are being hypocritical. They'll help out an animal, but not this woman. There's no response to this. All his adversaries were put to shame. These fig trees continue to be fruitless. And so this is one side of the divided response, but there is happily another one. The second group is made up of the woman who was healed and uh, the, the larger part of the crowd, so in verse 13, we're told that upon being healed, this woman glorified God, which means she began to worship God. She praises Him, and this is the right response. This is proper. Jesus refers to her as a daughter of Abraham in verse 16. Likely there, uh, He's not just referring to the fact that she is a Jew, a physical descendant of Abraham, but also a spiritual child of Abraham, a woman who shared in the faith of Abraham. It's possible that her oppression uh, that she's been relieved of here was an external one to her in that, uh, you know, maybe it's similar to the way Satan had attacked Job or even Paul. So it might be that she was already a daughter of faith prior to being healed, or it could be that she gets saved right here on the spot. I lean towards the former, but regardless, the end result is that this woman is glorifying God. She's giving praise to God, Uh, but she's not the only one in this passage to do that. Uh, Verse 17, while the enemies, the adversaries of the Lord were put to shame, it says all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And so on this particular occasion with this crowd, there's much rejoicing. To rejoice is to be filled with joy on account of these glorious things that they were seeing Jesus do and express this in thanksgiving and praise and worship to God. And so here we have these fig trees bearing good fruit. And so we have very plainly in this passage and very clearly in verse 17, the division that Jesus spoke about. Some rejected him and his adversaries, he puts them to shame, but others were left praising, rejoicing, glorifying God on account of what he had done. The obvious application here is again that we need to face the truth that there are two types of people in this world there are those who believe what we're seeing in Scripture, what we read in Scripture, who are forgiven in Christ. And there are those upon whom God's wrath remains. There are those who enter the kingdom of God and there are those who do not. And so we need to first, ourselves, heed the call of God to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus. To enter the kingdom of God in this way. To not be like the fig tree from last week in verses 6 to 9 that bears no fruit and is only fit to be cut down and destroyed. And so to those who are on the outside, whether you are here now or whether you listen listen to this later or whether it's any of us talking to anyone else who is on the outside, our word to such people is to come in, to to repent of your sin, to no longer live in rebellion against God Almighty, but to understand the times, that there is a limited amount of time to confess our sin to God, to acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for His mercy and grace, and to receive His mercy and grace by believing in Jesus Christ, and so enter into the kingdom, while there's yet opportunity. Here, the rejection of Christ, uh, you know, is, is is made manifest as they uh, call call them out on break supposedly breaking the Sabbath. Um, Jesus points it out as hypocrisy, but of course rebellion takes all kinds of different forms. And so whatever form rebellion might take, our, new, our message to those who persist in it would be to turn, to stop running in rebellion against Almighty God, to confess your sin to Him, to look to Jesus Christ, and He says, you will be forgiven, that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be forgiven and will come into the Lord's kingdom. And if we have done this and we have heeded this call, if we have seen our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness, we've entered the kingdom of God by faith in Christ, uh, then there's further applications from, I think, from this text. First, we are reminded that worship and rejoicing is the appropriate response to God's compassionate mercy that He's shown us. Maybe you're low on joy, I would invite you to consider the great mercy that God has shown you in Christ, to set your mind upon this and to instruct your soul that there is much reason to be joyful. There are reasons to be happy in Christ, to be joyful, to rejoice. Circumstances even can still be difficult, and yet we have reasons to rejoice. So I would invite you to to preach this to yourself. And to lean not on your own understanding if things look bleak and dark, but to look to Christ and see you have every reason to be joyful. Second, we should not be surprised when we see division around the person of Christ. Rather, we should prepare ourselves for this. We should gird ourselves for this. Sometimes Christians... Can can ring wring their hands over the unbelief that we see. And we wonder why. Certainly it's right to be disturbed by unbelief. We ought to have compassion on those who who do not believe, those who are in darkness. We should be motivated to pray. That is certainly true, but at the same time, we know that's gonna happen. We know it's coming. Not everyone believes. And sometimes this does occur within families, and many here know it, have experienced it. Sometimes it happens among friends, co-workers, etc. As, as Christians, we know, we're prepared, we know that there are those who will oppose us as an expression of opposing Christ. The fact is, and the Bible tells us this, if they oppose Jesus, they will oppose us. Jesus was perfect. He was God the Son, eternal, in human form, when He came to the earth and walked the earth, and they still rejected Him. Friends, they will reject us. We are not Him. They will reject us. So we are to be fortified for this. Third, we must continue upholding the authority of the Bible and point others to Christ, since it is the Bible that reveals to us that the Messiah has come, and that the time to enter His kingdom is now. To be saved is to enter His kingdom. To repent of sin, to trust in Jesus Christ, this is to enter the kingdom of God. So may we be those who do more than understand weather patterns, who do more than understand or try to understand the shifting winds of our culture. May we be those who do more than understand our profession. May we be those who do more than become experts at our various hobbies. Let us be those who understand the times, that today is the day of salvation, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the Lord Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom. And may we be those who enter while there's time and plead with others to enter while there's time. And may we be those who are about our Father's business, doing as Jesus called us to do, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness while we trust Him to supply all of our other needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We give you thanks for your word. Father, thank you that you've not left us in darkness, that you've revealed to us who you are. Thank you that these truths have been attested by eyewitnesses and preserved for us in your word. And Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, illuminate our understanding, our our, our, hearts, our hearts, that we would understand Your Scriptures, Your Word, that we would believe it, that we would love Your Word, that we would love You, that we would be those who understand our need for forgiveness and salvation, that we would be those who glorify You for the great things You have done. God, You have provided a salvation for sinful people that we could never attain if You had not graciously gone about providing it for us. So, Father, we we thank you for Christ, for sending your Son to do what we could not, to earn righteousness and pay the penalty for our sin. Thank you that your righteousness is available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your gracious salvation. God, we pray that you would cause our hearts to rejoice. I pray that you'd fortify us for life in a world that still is unbelieving, that many unbelievers still exist. Father, we pray that you would yet save many more, even those we know now who we've been seeking to share Christ with, who at this moment do not believe. We pray that you would do great work in their hearts and cause faith to come about that you would help them see the truth of of Scripture, the truth of your word, that they would understand the times. Father, we pray this would be true for every person here and for us uh, and for our our loved ones as well, for our children. Father, we pray that you would fill us with joy at the thought of being citizens of your kingdom. Fill us with joy at the thought of the ultimate fulfillment of your kingdom, when we will dwell with you eternally so in a perfected state. Father, we just pray you'd strengthen us as we go from this place. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.